Hello and welcome to the Simungo's podcast. This is episode 61 and today we are discussing the dilemmas in fluid resuscitation in sepsis with Dr. Alistair Corfield. And this episode is brought to you by St Mungo's and our partners Continuous.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-N-U-L-U-S.com. Continuous is a socially responsible healthcare learning platform and you can access on-demand lectures and courses with the leading researchers and educators in emergency and critical care medicine from around the world. And these come with CPD and CME accreditation, plus you'll be supporting healthcare projects in low-resource settings. To coincide with this lecture, we're offering a 25% discount off the Echo Guided Life Support course. That's an amazing course where you'll learn how to use ultrasound to diagnose and manage shock at the bedside. So use the coupon code EGLS25 at checkout. And now let's jump right into the podcast. So welcome to the Simungo's podcast. I'm very delighted to welcome Dr. Alistair Corfield. And Alistair, if you don't mind uh, just letting the listeners know who you are, where you work, and then maybe where your particular interests kind of grew on this topic we're about to speak about. Um, so, yeah, I'm a consultant in emergency medicine based at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley. I've also got a little sideline in pre-hospital and retrieval medicine with uh, the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service in Scotland. And then the other sort of main interest I have is with research in emergency care, uh, including pre-hospital medicine. So covering the whole patch of emergency care, including emergency departments. I've had an interest in critical care delivery both in the emergency department and pre-hospital care, basically since I started as a trainee. So I suppose that's where my research interests lie are in that part of emergency care, about how we deliver critical care to our patients and how we can improve the delivery of that. Fantastic. And we're going to talk about at least a couple of uh, research projects that you're working on on this topic at the end. So that's, that's exciting. Now, today we're going to talk about fluid resuscitation in sepsis. Now, this feels like a topic that has been talked about ad nauseum, but yet there's still so much we don't know, despite all the research. And we fluxed quite significantly in, in terms of our practice. So I thought a good starting point would be, if you don't mind trying to summarize the last 10 or 15 years, because it has changed quite a bit our practice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge topic in a way to try and sort of nail down how we resuscitate patients who have got sepsis. What is the best way to do it? And you're right, practice has moved and evolved. Some of it's gone forward, some of it's gone round in circles, some of it we're not really quite sure where we've got to so far. But, you know, if you think back maybe 15 years to sort of the early 2000s, what we were doing, you know, things like synthetic starches were still a big deal if they wanted to use them. Whereas now I think we can safely say that certainly um, the synthetic starches are not a good thing to use in the resuscitation of patients with sepsis. And yet there's other things that we haven't really resolved. Um, you know, things like when do we use albumin? How do we use albumin? There were big studies done 10 or 15 years ago that helped answer that. But we haven't really moved on uh, in that in that field. So I think there's lots of things that have changed. There's lots of things that haven't changed. I think what we have done is probably got to a point now where we're much clearer about what the questions are that we want to answer. I think previously there was lots of different parts, but I think now we're a bit clearer about what we do know and what we've got good, good evidence about, and also what we don't know and what we want to get good evidence about. Well, I think that's a good 
time to jump into the the meat of this podcast let's say now we you, you kindly sent me a recent publication which i'll let you describe actually but it was in the critical care medicine journal and it had three headings which i think summarize the main topics and and what we know and what we don't know and we're just going to go through those three separately if that's okay uh, do you mind just telling us what that paper was sure so uh, i'd really recommend this Paper frame was interesting. The topic is a really nice summary of where we're at. So it's titled The Surviving Sepsis Campaign, Fluid Resuscitation and Vasopressor Therapy Research Priorities in Adult Patients. And that was published in Critical Care Medicine back in March of this year. And as you say, they've kind of identified three big domains of areas that we need to know more about. So first of all, what are the ideal endpoints for volume resuscitation and how should volume resuscitation be titrated? Second, what is the optimal fluid for sepsis resuscitation? And then the last question is, what is the optimal approach to selection, dose titration and escalation of vasopressor therapy? Now, I guess we can take that maybe in, in three chunks. First of all, is that question about what are the ideal endpoints for volume resuscitation and how should volume resuscitation be titrated? So I think it's safe to say that fluid resuscitation is a mainstay of the treatment of sepsis. And I think evidence-wise, there's evidence there that it's a good idea. Beyond that, I think you can actually get into quite a lot of discussion about how much fluid you want to give patients and where optimally you're aiming for when you've got a sick patient in front of you who's got sepsis. So I'm talking about you know, the, the current definition of septic shock, which is you know, a patient with hypotension and or a lactate greater than or equal to four. That's the kind of sort of standard definition for this group of patients. And current therapy or current guidelines are sort of centered around the 30 mils per kilo of IV crystalloid in the first hour, that's the sort of bundle that we're aiming for. Now, the evidence for that is debatable. I think there's a sort of continuum of how much fluid you should give. It probably is somewhere between 10 to 15 to 40 to 50. And we've sort of gone with 30 because that's right bang in the middle. But the evidence that supports that isn't, isn't great. Um, it's certainly some evidence, but no means definitive. And then there's a little bit about how you then titrate that so you, you this sort of idea that maybe one size doesn't fit all so this is a kind of ballpark of figure that you're going for but then how do you titrate that you know do you use invasive hemodynamic monitoring do you use clinical judgment passive leg raises lactates um ultrasound guided you know there's there's a lot of different ways of evaluating how much fluid you should give a patient and again i I'm, i've not got my hat hung in any of them personally um, but and you can find people that are both for and against all those different methods. But I think it's safe to say that there isn't one of them that has absolutely definitely been shown to be the way to measure how good or how well a patient is responding to fluid resuscitation. So the gaps in their understanding, certainly it's about trying to find a way to individualise resuscitation. It's, it's As I've just said, it's about variables. Like what, what are the things that are important to know from a patient? Um, that are going to help you guide fluid resuscitation. The timing of that, the, the duration of fluid resuscitation, should it be done over an hour, should it be 
be a big bows over an hour, so they'd be stretched out a bit. And again, that amount of fluid that we have to give, I think, is also open to debate as to quite what the optimal initial volume to give is. And then there's other things that sort of come along with that. Indeed, is that obviously we have an older population, we have a comorbid population. How do we tailor our resuscitations for that group? And also, very importantly, how do we define our optimal strategy for resource-limited settings, which is the, you know, the vast majority of the world? Yeah, you've obviously mentioned personalization. That's obviously a, a kind of fashionable term now, and I think that's we're moving towards that kind of personalized approach. It's all, I've always wondered about sepsis because we obviously start treatment immediately at the point that they come in the door, but we don't know at what point in their course of their illness they may have just picked up symptoms. They may be advanced, late-stage septic shock, but yet we're giving a single type of treatment to all these different variables. And clearly we don't have an answer that gives us a better way of doing it, but what's your thoughts on, on, on that? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a really interesting point, isn't it, Owen? Because as I say, sepsis is a heterogeneous, more so than other diseases perhaps, in terms of where you are in that um, uh, cascade of deteriorating physiology and deteriorating function. So, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, and that also fits in with the, the bit about personalization. I think, you know, that's, that's what, you know, when sepsis, um, what you what you have when you have a patient who has septic shock who is unwell um, is someone who has got a dysregulated response to an infection. They're the unlucky person whose immune system is not responding in a way that's helpful for them. And I think we're just beginning to get to that stage where we understand more about what that dysregulated immune response is. Um, I think you know, you're talking about you were asking back at the start about what's changed in the last 10 or 15 years. For me, that's probably one of the things that has really changed is our understanding of what is actually going on at a pathophysiological level. Um, when someone has, you know, when someone is unwell with sepsis, what, you know, that sort of process that is happening. Now, that I am in no way an expert in that particular part of, um, uh, in that particular part of sepsis, I have a, a layman's understanding of it. But I, you can see that that is potentially a way that we might be able to personalise the response you've seen i mean i'll use the example of um, covid and what we've learned about interleukin 6 and the how effective blocking interleukin 6 with toxilizumab can be for patients with covid now that's obviously different but actually in a way quite similar that's you know covid is also about a dysregulated immune system in response to stimulus and i think we're getting to the stage now with sepsis where there's we are understanding the various components of a dysregulated immune response in sepsis and we now have targets that we can apply therapies to so if you're asking me that's that's what i think is our is the route in for us to be able to personalize care for people with sepsis so obviously there's well we're going to be talking quite a bit about some of the uncertainty we still have despite a lot of research now i'm not a particular i'm not a researcher myself but for those like me who don't maybe understand the, the, the elements of research, why is it that we don't know as much as we want to know at this stage? What is it about the research? Is it that we've not done the right types of research? Has it not been coordinated research? Is it not been part enough? Have we just have we just not found it different? What is it about research in these trials that that has left this uncertainty? 
So good question again. I think there's probably a number of things that have left us in this position. So first of all, I think it's that thing about sepsis being hit a bit more heterogeneous in terms of timeframes as to when you become unwell and when you present. There's a there's a bit of a spectrum there. I think the other thing to remember is that a lot of the evidence and trials that have been done in sepsis are related to the critical care phase, not that resuscitation phase, not that first six hours, even up to 12 hours. There's there's not that much research being done in that phase. And the reason I think for that is because it's difficult to do. Do you know this? Is, you're dealing with a group of patients who are very unwell, who need time-dependent treatment, multi-modality time-dependent treatment, and trying to get you know, well-conducted research done in that period is difficult. It is difficult. It is not low-hanging fruit. So I think people have focused their attention elsewhere because there's, there's easier ways to, easier subjects to look at. The other thing to consider for this group is that the, the numbers of patients you need to conduct a good study and is in the thousands. So if you look at the, the, the trials that have been done around types of fluid rather than volume, types of fluid start, um, studies like smart and split you know you're looking at seven eight ten fifteen thousand patients and you know that's that requires a lot of time effort and resource so you have to you know get a lot of people together that want to do the study you need to get a big funder to support you it's not an easy project and it's you know it's a 10-year project from start to finish so i think those are the big challenges that have stopped us getting definitive answers particularly about the resuscitation phase of sepsis so far it feels like one of the holy grails would be to discover a better way to assess fluid responsiveness. Is that fair? I mean, you mentioned that. It's very yeah, hard yeah. to say how much the patient needs, how they're responding. Do they need more? Do they need less? Is there anything to say in that field? I mean, I know that you mentioned there's no one perfect solution. Is there work being done? Is there any hopeful advances in technology or anything else? Or where do you think the future of assessment of fluid responsiveness lies? Yeah, I, I, again, I I would say agnostic about this. I think I would love to tell you that um, test X is going to give us the answer, but I think that there's, another, there's again, a couple of factors to think about. There's a bit about that balance against of technology against simplicity um, and being able to have something that's reproducible and accessible for everyone. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's evidence, from, again, from critical care about the use of echo-guided um, fluid resuscitation and various devices that are seem to work pretty well in that setting, but whether you can deliver that in the resuscitation phase widely, even in high-income countries, never mind low-income countries, I think it's debatable. So then you come back to the simpler, I use the, I put them in quotation marks, simpler methods like you know capillary refill time, clinical evaluation, even just you know ultrasound of your your IVC, all those things, and even those are they deliverable at scale? Maybe, maybe. So I think that's that's the challenge we have, that we need to come up with things that are reliable and accurate, but also deliverable at scale. And that, you know, that is the holy grail, as you said. And unfortunately, we haven't. Uh, I'm pretty clear in the, my opinion that we haven't found that yet, but that's what we need. Well, let's go to number two. Here's another big topic, and that is what is the optimal fluid for sepsis resuscitation? So what what do we know, first of all? Yep. And again, I think we know a lot more than we did 10 or 15 years ago. I think there's been a couple of big studies that have given us some good guidance. So certainly the SMART trial, um, uh, SALTED, SALT-ED, 
a split trial have given us evidence and it's a little, some of it's a bit conflicting but I think you can probably if you look into the studies you can sort of explain it away I think smart and salt ED gave us pretty good evidence that crystalloid wise you probably should use a balanced or buffered crystalloid rather than normal saline the split trial was a bit more um, equivocal about that it didn't really show a difference but that was quite a different patient group that was you know split was done in sort of post-op, elective post-op ICU type patients, whereas particularly SALT ED was basically all comers to the front door, randomised to saline or a buffered crystalloid. So it's much more pragmatic, I think, much more valid externally. And that definitely shows you that at the very best, there's no difference between um, buffered crystalloids and normal saline. But I think most people would agree there's definitely a benefit to using a buffered um, a buffered crystalloid. So I think, again, I'm not sure that's an absolutely universal opinion, but I, you know, in that thing where you've got evidence that shows either no difference or some difference, you kind of, given there's not a huge difference in cost, that you've got a buffered crystalloids or balanced crystalloids are probably the way to go if you're going to use crystalloids. I think then the other the other part of that is crystalloids or colloids, and as I said. We've moved on a lot in the last 10 years. I think synthetic colloids, you know, the starches are pretty much have been definitively proven to be harmful again, harmful to your kidneys, uh, a bit like normal saline. But I think the thing about albumin isn't answered yet either for the 5% albumin use or uh, in the resuscitation phase, particularly as I've been answered, I think in critical care, we've got some good evidence that is probably the way to go when you're in the critical care phase again from the, the Albios trial and the SAFE trial. You know, if you're a septic patient in critical care and you're being resuscitated, the albumin is probably a better bet. But as I say, for the reasons I've talked about earlier on, no one's really answered that question in the resuscitation phase. So that's, you know, the, the patient that, you know, is in the door and you're needing to resuscitate them with fluid, what should you give them? At the minute, it's probably balanced crystalloid is the best answer, but it's unclear if albumin would give you some more benefit or not. And of course, we're going to talk about uh, one of the trials that you're actively involved in, and that's hopefully going to add some answers to this particular topic. Isn't that right? ABC sepsis. We'll talk yeah. about that. We'll talk about that in a wee minute. One of the most kind of memorable trials of the last 10 years, and this is me trying to act all clever now, but was the FEAST trial. Now, that seemed to shake up the world from what I could see in terms of if it would just give us the completely opposite kind of result that we expected do you mind for those listeners that maybe don't know the child do you mind just summarizing it and then say what you think or how that may be influenced and um, what has happened in our practice if it has at all i guess yeah feast absolutely landmark trial um yeah it did shake the world and made people completely reevaluate what we were trying to achieve with fluid resuscitation so yeah, they randomized, as a pediatric trial, where they randomized patients with severe sepsis to essentially fluids or no fluids um, if they were unwell with sepsis and presented to hospitals. So this is done in sub-Saharan Africa. So they're yeah, saline, albumin, or maintenance fluids and looked at their outcomes. And they showed um, pretty convincingly that there was excess mortality in the fluid group and all sub groups of children um, 
it wasn't about malaria because that wasn't a, there was no difference in outcomes between those subgroups, and there was no this idea of fluid responsiveness didn't affect your um, prognosis. So being a fluid responder um, didn't mean any any difference to your outcome. So there's there's all sorts of reasons why that might be, and there's been lots and lots and lots of discussion um, about that. But yeah, I again, if you're asking me my opinion. About it. I think that's one of the things that has changed our practice. You know, we we're talking earlier on about how people have moved away from the 30 per kilo. I've got no doubt that this study's one of the main reasons for that because people have looked at that and gone, oh, oh, everything I thought was wrong. Um, <laughs> what do I do now? So, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a landmark trial, but it hasn't completely fed through. Um, and I think that's probably reasonable. It is quite a different population lots of you know that thing about external validity it's you know it is a very different population to what i see in my practice daily in the uk so there's absolutely learning to be had from it but i'm not sure that you can just directly translate the results of that study across into our practice okay so the third kind of topic we wanted to approach was vasopressor therapy so that's crept in more to emergency care hasn't it it yes. used to be just all fluids. You might get vasopressors in the ICU. And now that's creeping in a kind of slightly more cautious fluids and earlier vasopressors. So do you mind summing up? Where, where are we with that? How did we get here? What What are the, the big questions still to be answered? Yeah, so I think this is probably the most difficult or complex question because there's sort of a number of sub-questions in there. So first of all, there's your, which vasopressor do you want to use? So you can choose norepinephrine, you can choose vasopressin, you can choose angiotensin 2. Uh, I, I don't think the question's answered for which is the best one out of those three. Um, even in the critical care population, never mind in the resuscitation phase. There's reasons to think that any or all of those might have benefits or might all be the same. So there's, there's that bit. There's then the bit about dose titration about the, the point about where do you bring that in what are you aiming so do you know, does that come in early does that come in late and what is your target now i think we've had some uh, the 65 trial from probably two years ago now was really quite an interesting trial so that showed in that in that older age group that a map of 65 is actually adequate for patients who are unwell with sepsis so that's sort of you know Aiming for a mean arterial pressure of 65 is fine. Like traditionally, we used to aim for maybe 75 or even higher, particularly in older patients with you know, hypertension or renal disease. But the 65 trial has shown that actually mean arterial pressure of 60 to 65 um, is adequate for everyone as a target to aim for. So that's certainly one question that we've answered quite well. But yeah, there are other there are other bits of that that we don't really have a good answer to. So there's a number of different things that we need to pick out about vasopressors and when and how and where to use them. So I think that's probably, as I say, the question that's got the most unanswered bits to it at present. Um, so I was thinking about a lot of this research seems to come from intensive care groups, which is understandable. They're probably with patients longer. It's easier maybe to to, to do these big, massive trials that, that often are required. But we're obviously extrapolating information from critical care ICU into the emergency population, which I'm sure has 
problems. Um, what, what, what's been your experience around that and, and what do we need to do to kind of answer more specific questions for emergency? Yeah, so I think that's an important point, Owen. I think um, as a, you know, a lot of the big studies that we've been talking about today and in the literature are basically critical care studies. And we're basically saying that works in that phase of the illness, so therefore it should work in the resuscitation phase as well, which might be true but it also might not be true. And I think that's, for me, that's one of the biggest gaps that there is in the knowledge, which isn't, interestingly, isn't specifically addressed in the surviving sepsis uh, paper I was talking about from March this year. It doesn't specifically go into that. And I think that is actually a big gap in the knowledge is that we know a lot about what to do with people once they're in critical care. I think we know less about what to do with them in that initial first six hours of resuscitation. And I think that's, you know, for me, that's for us as emergency physicians. Um, I think that's the, the phase of treatment that we need to know a lot more about. And that leads nicely into a couple of uh, trials that you are involved in. Isn't that right? So do you mind just telling us a wee bit about, about those? The first one is ABC sepsis. I believe that started. Is that right? So do you mind just summarizing that first? Yeah, yeah. So again, it ties in with what we've been talking about earlier on. Uh, and the, this is about the type of fluid that we use in resuscitation. So this ABC sepsis, multi-centre, UK-based trial uh, comparing balanced crystalloid against 5% albumin as the resuscitation fluid for patients with sepsis, so adult patients with sepsis, presenting to the front door of the hospital, ED, medical assessment, surgical assessment, uh, and randomising them basically to get uh, standard surviving sepsis balanced crystalloids, so 30 mils per kilo, or 5% albumin, 10 per kilo, in the first three hours, followed by uh, a second bolus of the same in the hours three to six. And what we want to do with that, it's not going to be the definitive trial. It's, it's not powered for that. That's not what we're out to do. I think we're trying to look initially at that question about Balanced crystalloids, so to go back to what I was saying, balanced crystalloids and saline, the evidence to me suggests that balanced crystalloids are better. The historical trials I was talking about, Albios and SAFE, looking at 5% albumin, in a lot of that, those studies, the comparator has been saline. So we will actually want to know, is there, a, is there an outcome difference between balanced crystalloid and 5% albumin? Because that's the question we don't really have a handle on. So we want to look for an evidence of treatment effect there. And also to go back to what I was saying, we want to show that it is feasible to recruit large numbers of patients in this patient group because, as I say, it's a challenging scenario, resuscitation phase. So those are our two key goals with it, with this study, um, is to you know, recruit about 300 patients across 15 centres in the UK and answer those two questions. Is there evidence of a treatment gap between those two interventions? And also, can we recruit in large numbers in this patient group? Yeah, so that study started, um, and hopefully will finish in the next 12 months or so. So we should have answers pretty quickly to those two questions. Fantastic. We'll look forward to that. And, and then you have another trial that's upcoming, I believe, and that's looking more at vasopress or looking more at that side of it. So yeah. do, do you mind just summarizing that for us as well? Yeah. So EVIS is the kind of sister study to ABC sepsis. And we're just waiting. Hopefully we're going to get funding for that. It's a much bigger study. We're looking for over 3,000 patients in 60 centres across the UK. We're just hopefully going to get some news about funding on that soon. But yeah, so that's going to you know, uh, randomise patients 
again with septic shock, so hypertension and or high lactate, to either standard fluid resuscitation therapy or going down the line of introducing vasopressors peripherally quite early on in their in their patient journey uh, and look at the how that affects their outcome, principally mortality, but also lots of other uh, outcomes of interest as well, critical care usage, length of stay, ventilator use. And also, we're kind of not quite doing a two-in-one, but we, I think the way that we should, if we're going to deliver vasopressors in the resuscitation phase, to make it, again, it's that thing about making it accessible to all, is look at peripheral delivery of vasopressors. And again, to go off on a wee sidebar here, um, that's something that the critical care community is embracing more and more. So the Intensive Care Society put out some guidelines last year, actually, about you know how to use peripheral vasopressors in, a, in an organised and um, governed way. And I think that's what we're going to try and embrace, is that idea of um, giving people, you know, randomising them either to standard fluid therapy or early peripheral vasopressors. Um, so that they get the vasopressors in a, in a timely manner and again is deliverable across a wide spectrum of settings. For people like yourself who are researching in emergency departments and you have a short window with a patient, how much is dependent on ongoing collaboration and with the intensive care if that's where they end up? Or so, so to set up some of these trials, do, do you have to have onward collaboration or can we tell enough from our few hours of, of input in this patient? Does that make sense? Do you get what I'm trying to ask? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, both those projects, ABC Sepsis and EGIS, are multidisciplinary collaborative projects with critical care and indeed acute medicine as well. You, I, again, I am absolutely firmly of the belief you cannot deliver effective emergency care research without collaborating with other specialties you know if you think about our departments that's that's what we do all day every day that's how, that's one of our core functions is to take the patient work out what's going on from start their treatment and liaise with specialties to, you know, to deliver the best care for that patient and you know research has to be done in exactly the same way in collaboration with our colleagues in critical care and acute medicine now i guess you're probably i mean you mentioned you're still waiting on the funding but if that goes through and, and we wish you well with that um, will you be looking to recruit or are you looking, if there's someone listening who maybe has a department that might like to get involved, what should they do? Uh, you, you know, absolutely. We uh, will be looking for a large number of centres across the UK and we'd be very keen to hear from centres that are interested in recruiting to study. So if you if you work in a centre where you have genuine equipoise about this question and don't know which way you want to go, then yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. Um, either you can contact me through email or you can DM me via social media channels if you want um, and uh, I'll get back to you about it. But yeah, we would love to have um, expressions of interest from other centres. And we'll put some information in our show notes, you know, some of the ways that they can get in touch with you if that's helpful. Uh, Alistair Corfield, thank you very, very much. I think uh, we've come to the end, but we always finish with one last question, if that's okay. So I bring you back in my time machine. Um, so if, if I could bring you back to meet your junior self starting your career, what have you gained in, in all of your experience so far that you would pass on to your junior self just starting their career? Uh, uh, good question. So I think if we're talking about emergency medicine, but also about emergency medicine research, so a bit of both, I think the two C's for me, so collaboration and communication, 
think uh, that would be my message to my younger self is that emergency medicine is a team sport and you need to work with everyone to make it successful but that also applies to research in emergency medicine it's also a team sport you need to engage with everyone you're your multidisciplinary team in the department but also in the wider research community and then again to go along with that is communication it's about being clear about what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to achieve it yeah i think that's the message that i would give to my younger self Dr. Alistair Corfe, we wish you very well with your funding, by the way, and, and your projects, and we look forward to those results. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Owen. So many, many thanks to Dr. Alistair Corfield. There's still a lot of work to do in this area and a lot of exciting emergency medicine-focused uh, research happening in this area. And if you'd like to get involved, we have put Alistair's contact details in the show notes. And finally, just before we go, just one last reminder about our special offer this month. We were obviously discussing uh, ways to assess fluid responsiveness, and one of those ways is ultrasound. And this course, Echo Guided Life Support, is a fantastic three-hour course where you can learn how to use ultrasound to better diagnose and manage shock at the bedside. It's got lectures, it's got tutorials and case presentations, and it comes with three CPD points and three AMA PRA Category 1 credits. And this course has helped me significantly in my practice, and it comes highly recommended. So to get the course, just go to Continuous and use EGLS25 at checkout. And remember, please go to stmungos-ed.com for lots more educational resources. Until next time, everyone, please take care. <laughs>